0: Good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jun Ha. I serve as an intern here. And today we are in the last week of our Advent series. As mentioned throughout the series, Advent is a season of waiting. Uh, we look back to the first arrival of Jesus, but we also look forward to the future. But for us, in the present moment, we live in the in-between. We live in between two Advents. We still live in a world leaking with pain and suffering. There's wars and violence. There's mental health issues, depression, loneliness, division. And as Pastor Jason mentioned last week, we still battle with sin and flesh and the devil. And we grieve and we mourn and we suffer deep, deep loss. And the list can go on and on. We are, as what uh, writer Fleming Rutledge puts it, in the heart of darkness. And as the darkness presses in and the brokenness that we feel can be suffocating and the light in our hearts can be snuffed out. And we might ask in the world that we live in, is peace possible here? Is hope possible here? Is joy possible here? Relage, again, says that in the Advent darkness, the only possibility is the impossibility of the intervention of God. And each week, we've been saying that the impossible has happened in Christ, that Christ has intervened into our world, that in the arrival of Christ, what seems impossible is possible. Because of him, like the candles we've been lighting each week, peace can begin to burn again. Hope can burn again. Joy can burn again. And today we'll look at love, that because the God of love has intervened, that love is possible here, and that love can begin to burn in our hearts again. And today we'll look at 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 12. I'm going to read the passage for us and briefly pray for our time together, um, and then we'll dive in. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. God, we just thank you for your word, your word that are your words of love. And God, as we have been celebrating each week of your Advent, we ask for your Advent of your spirit now to show us your love, to manifest your love into our hearts. And God, would we all be like Mary, and receive your love um, into our hearts that we may birth love out in this world. God, be with us um, and saturate this time with your spirit and your love. We pray these things in Christ's name. So the main idea for today is that God's love compels us to be loving people. God's love compels us to be loving people. And our roadmap today will be the source of God's love, the shape of God's love, and the visibility of God's love. First, the source. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John here encourages us to love. He says we should love because we know him and we're born of him. And those who don't love don't know him as the God of love. Now, when I was preparing, the phrase, God is love, in verse 8, stuck out. Given the heart of darkness that we live in and experience, I wonder, does this ring true for you? Does it ring true for me that God is love? I think sometimes in our difficult moments, we can start to question God's love. We might say things like, God, if you were really love, I wouldn't be in this situation right now. If you were really love, you would get me out of this circumstance. You would get me this job. I wouldn't be struggling financially. I would have passed this test. You would have gotten me the buy my fantasy football playoffs. <laughs> what is it for you that makes you question God's love? But I wonder if this statement by John, that God is love, can serve as a sort of anchor for us. Because the truth is, whatever we go through, whatever hardship, and whatever you feel about God, it won't change who he is. He is a God of love. That's who he is today. That's who he is tomorrow. That's who he is forevermore, as Hebrews 13 tells us. He does not change. He will always be love. And as one commentator writes, all of God's activity is loving activity. And if that's the case, maybe what John and what that phrase kind of invites us to is a perspective shift, that instead of letting our circumstances dictate and shape whether God is loving or not, but rather to let God who is love to see our circumstances differently. And perhaps underneath that pain and the suffering and underneath the darkness that we go through, there's a gift there for us, that we trust that his loving presence will meet meet us there, meet us in the darkness. And isn't that Advent that love came down at Christmas, that love came into the darkness. And the mystery of Advent is that it happens in a way that we don't expect. Doesn't come pretty in a nice box with a bow on it underneath a tree. But love can come and often does come in a small and hidden way, like Jesus coming in the form of a baby baby hidden in, inside a barn. And perhaps what we need is new eyes to see that, to see that love. And I think this is important because seeing God as love will help us to see those around us differently. If God is love, He's created the world, He sustains the world. He redeems the world in love. That means those made in his image and those, and those in the world he has created, created deeply matter to him and are deeply important to him. And those who, have, who know him and have been born of him share in this love. We love what he loves. The people in the world that matter to him begins to matter to us. However, you might be already asking yourself this, whether you're a Christian or not today. Do you need to know God to love? John says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Does that mean that those who don't believe in God can't love? No, right? We, we, we see people loving their friends, their family, their communities, strangers. And this is good. This is beautiful. It, it, it shows that we are made in the image of the one who is love. So what is the love that John talks about here that requires knowing him and being born of him? The love John is using is this agape love. John Stott, he describes it as a self-sacrificial love, the seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost. Pastor Torrey called it a one-way love. Another writer distinguishes love from affections. He says affection is not love. It's an expression of God's love. Love is a settled will working in the direction of another for the growth of their good. And if I were to maybe put all that in a sentence, God's love is his unconditional, sacrificial commitment to the good and flourishing of others, even his enemies, even at great cost to himself. So if this describes God's love, how did he show us this love? How did he love us in this way? That leads me to my second point, the shape of God's love. John writes, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John writes here that the way God showed us love was in sending his son. And note, John says he gave us his only son. He's conveying just how precious the son is to the father the son that he spent eternity with in loving communion and fellowship before the foundation of the world, the one he calls his beloved son with whom he's well-pleased. It's this son he sent as a gift to the world for you and for me, for us. And if love could be measured by how much one is willing to give up for another, then God, God loves us an infinite amount for he gave us his infinite son. In other words, there's no bounds, there's no limits to his love for you. Like we sung today, it's it's immeasurable. This is why the psalmist sings, your steadfast love extends to the heavens, or your love is higher than the heavens. There was nothing that God wasn't willing to give to the world for its good, even if it meant sending his own son, whom he deeply, deeply loves. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold back on us. He gives us heaven's best. He gives us his very heart. John Stott says, a greater self-giving than God's gift of his son that has never been nor could be. And this love is even more stunning when we see who he gives this love to. He gives this love, the gift of his son, for undeserving sinners like you and for me, those who actively oppose him, who actively work against the good of others and the world, who are Loveless and who don't love the way we should love. Romans 5 eight says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Rather than giving us what we're owed because of our sin, which is an eternal separation from his presence of peace and joy and hope and love. He gives us his son. He gives us Christ. And how did Christ show us this love? verse 9 says he was sent so that he was sent so that he may give others life and he's implying that his whole purpose in being sent here was to give others life his whole life was committed to the good and the flourishing of others from when he was born to when he died matthew 20:28 20, says even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many The thief only, in John 10.10, he says, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Christ, he didn't come to secure life for himself, to secure money or possessions or power. Rather, he comes to give all of that away, to give himself away for the good of others. He empties himself of life so that we and those who call on him may be full of it. And all throughout the Gospels, you see this life of love in serving others, whether it's healing the sick, the blind, the lame, the lepers, he's raising the dead. You see him show compassion to the outcast, to those on the margins of society. You see him washing the disciples' feet. But I want to zoom in on a scene in Jesus' life briefly where we see this love at work. It's in Luke 22, verses 39 through 46, and Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm going to read it for us. It'll be on the screen. It says, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Throughout the gospels, we see Jesus telling the disciples this phrase, the son of man will be delivered up to be killed at the hands of sinful men. And as his death is approaching, we see him here going to the Father to pray. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And here in the garden, we see this settled will here, submitted in love for the Father. But we also see in Jesus this deep agony. He's in earnest prayer, and he's sweating drops of blood. Because as he sees the cup he's going to drink, he sees the fullness of God's wrath that he would have to endure. But even more, he sees the separation and the forsakenness he would experience from the Father, his beloved Father, whom he spent all of eternity in love with. Yet in view of all this, it didn't keep him in despair. It didn't keep him down. The text says he rose. He rose from prayer. Why? Because as he saw the cup of wrath, he saw something else. He saw that through the cup. He saw through the cup and he saw the life he could give us. He didn't just see the separation and the forsakenness he would endure. But I believe he saw each one of us here today. He saw your face and he saw the peace he could give you. He saw the joy he could give you and he saw the love he could give you. And he said, I'll drink that. And so he rises from prayer and I like to see this as a mini-resurrection, because death cannot bury the love he had for us. Death cannot keep him from the life he wanted to give to us. Even the separation from his beloved father, being forsaken by the father whom he loves, cannot keep him from giving us this life. And he shows here that his love is stronger than death. His love is stronger than death. And he would drink the full cup of this wrath so that we could always drink everlastingly, of the cup of his love, the cup of his love. Um, And so this cup was poured out on Jesus, on the cross, where John says he was made the propitiation for our sins. And on the cross is where we see the pinnacle of God's love for us. He takes our place and takes on, bears the wrath of God against sin that we deserve. And if you want to know if you're loved today, if you want to know if you have worth if you want to know if you're valuable to Him and, you're, and know your worth, it begins by looking away from our circumstances and looking to the cross. This is what we do week in and week out. We want to come here to see Christ dying for us on the cross on our behalf, to see His love, to see that He said we are worth it to go to the cross for Him, to, to go to the cross for us. Christ was willing to give up everything for you to the point of giving up his own life, he entered not only the heart of darkness, but a darkness, that, a darkness that's far more greater than anything we'll ever experience. The wrath, the tragic loss of the father, the forsakenness that he would endure was all worth it to him if it meant giving you life. William Temple says, my worth is what I'm worth to God, and that is a marvelous great deal. For Christ died for me. And our worth is never, as, as, as Jesus shows us, our worth is never dependent on what we do for God, but always dependent on what he does for us in Christ. He doesn't love you because of what you do or don't do, because of your background, what you look like, thank God, right? Your, uh, your resume, your skills, you know, whether you're blue check verified or not on Instagram, he still loves us. And remember, John tells us it's not that we loved him, but that he loved us. It's not that we obeyed perfectly, followed him perfectly, loved him perfectly, but it's because he loved us. He doesn't wait for us to get it all together before he dies for us, but it was while we were yet sinners, he did. And this is a love that is secure and enduring. This is a love that we can trust. And in your moments of failure, when you've dropped a ball and you've just blown it, your lovelessness and your, your failures and your mistake cannot shake God's love for you. And conversely, like your, your obedience and your faithfulness also doesn't secure God's love for you. And this means we don't have to spend our lives in fear of losing this love. We also don't have to spend our lives trying to secure God's love. But we're finally free to just love, to spend our lives in love. And this this love is what compels us to love one another. And this leads me to my last point, the visibility of love. John says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Note here how John intensifies the encouragement in verse 7 into a command. In verse 7, he says, Let us love one another. Here he says, we ought to love one another. John's telling us, man, if God loved us like this, if he was willing to send his son and Christ was willing to come from heaven to earth and give up his life for us, then we got to love like this. We got to love. And we look at people differently. Those who are sitting next to you, those in our church, in our community, maybe those we just have a difficult time with, people we wouldn't normally... um, want to be with, these are all people that Christ was willing to die for. They're precious to God. And so they become precious to us. And it should, make, and, and it should um, produce in us that kind of same love. And we seek the good and the flourishing of them. And again, we don't earn God's love when we do this, but this love, his love, changes us. Now, I'm reminded of when uh, Jesus told Peter to cast his net out after Peter spent like all day fishing It's like, what? You want me to catch my net after I just fished all day and didn't catch anything? And when Peter pulls up this abundance of fish to the point where the nets are breaking, Peter responds by saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And what's going on there? It was the abundance and generosity of God that made Peter repent and change. And in a similar way, I think when we receive this love, it changes us. It compels us to move away from uh, solely seeking our own good and our own flourishing, our own comforts, and it moves us to be committed to another's good for their flourishing. And it empowers us because if God has secured life for us, if he secures us in love and he holds us in love, and we know that he'll always care for us and provide for us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, we don't don't have to be... um, gripping onto our lives, gripping onto what we have. But his grip on us can make us loosen our grip on our lives and we can give our lives away. We freely give of our time, our talents, our resources and love for others in service of them uh, to them to build them up. And at a deeper level, I believe that God's love compels us to love others solely for their sake. And I think one of the things that get in the way of real love for us sometimes is that we spend so much time trying to be lovable to others, trying to get their attention, trying to be acknowledged, trying to be seen that we actually never end up loving. All of our acts of love are really just ways to be loved by them rather, rather than a, out of a love for them. It's, a, it's this self-seeking love, although we do this outward acts of love. But if we have the secure love of the Father, We can freely love solely for their sake, solely for them, regardless of their response or regardless of how they, um, whether they reciprocate our love or whether they appreciate our love. We can solely love them because Christ loves them and Christ was willing to die for them. But also through Christ, we're also able to love across differences He was sent into a world when john says jesus was sent he was sent into the world he was sent into a world completely different from the one that he knew and he came to a people completely different from himself heaven was a place of love and holiness and he comes to an earth marked by death and sin he was god but he became became man but the differences didn't turn him away from us, didn't turn him away from us, but he loved across our differences. And I think this empowers us also to love across differences, whether it's age or culture or background. God's love compels us to love those we normally wouldn't be with, normally wouldn't want to spend time with, and it, loves, and it moves us to have this unifying type of love that we love each other across our differences. And so, family, what would it look like for us to love like this, to love sacrificially and to have this one-way love and commitment for the other's good, to love sacrificially, to have this one-way love and commitment for another, and to love across difference? I think, as John says here, God's love will be perfected in us, whereas the New Living Translation words it, his love is brought to full expression in us. In other words, God's otherworldly love will be seen through us. The advent of Jesus makes us into these little advents of love to one another and to to the world. It's through the body, through us, the hands and the feet of his church that those who don't know God's love can tangibly see and hear and touch God, God's love. Or put another way, through the church and through all the tangible acts of love, we do in the world and do for one another, it's, it's a way of God saying to, to people, hey, I'm here, and he, hey, I love you. And would many be able to say because of Terra Nova, because of us here today, that they were able to see and to know God's love. And today, if you don't know God's love for you, or if you haven't received this love, we would love to pray with you in the corner over there and talk to you about this love. And as the band comes up, and we take communion. You may be right now in a tough season of life, and you're questioning God's love for you. And as you contemplate before communion, maybe this can be a time where we can look at him loving us, to look at the one who loves us, to look at the one in your agony, to to look at the one who loves you, and in your agony to... To bring your agony to the one who agonizes over you, and to bring your pain to the one who was in pain for you, and to bring your suffering to the one who suffered for you. Sorry. Um, yeah, and then to be take the bread and the and the cup. To know that God's love is as real as the bread you eat and the juice and the cup that you drink. Let me pray for us. God, I, we thank you for your love and for your word, um, for shining your love into this world. And, we, and God, I just ask that your love would be tangibly seen through our lives and through our acts of love. Um, God, be with us. And as we await Um, your arrival next week as we celebrate Christmas. Um, We ask that you would fill our hearts um, with your love today. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.